this is Shift Run Stop. It's um, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. Thank you for spending your new year with us. Um, we've also got um, some great guests for your New Year's extravaganza. We have. Um, we've got Adam Curtis, the filmmaker. You'll know Adam Curtis from The Power of Nightmares. Uh, more recently, It Felt Like a Kiss, which was produced in Manchester with Punch Drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, phenomenal. Do you know Avery Edison? Elena does, because she's met her. But you, as a listener, I'm talking to you. Do you know her? Do you follow her on Twitter? You should do. She's really funny. And your, your use of Twitter is quite... Um, it's, it's quite polished in that you don't put out what you're eating for lunch. Every, every single no. tweet is a joke. Every, it's funny. Everyone, I, I used to, when I first started, I, I think my first tweet was about making toast. Right. It mm. has since been deleted. It takes a while to warm up to it, though, I think. Like, when you right. first start, you kind of go, oh, yeah. yeah. And I would, I would tweet just pretentious bollocks. Like, a rhyme about how it's raining on the way to university, which is not... It's not a good tweet. Why is that there? <laughs> but um, yeah, when I found other people making jokes, I actually credit Twitter with my actually being funny, despite the fact that I've been on the comedy course at Solent for a year before I joined Twitter. Mm. I didn't really learn any of that. And was that a BA in comedy writing? Comedy writing and performance. What sort of stuff did you have to do on that course? Uh, first year was stand up. First year was stand up. Mm. Um, so we had to do, I think, four assessed gigs throughout the year. Mm. And then second year is working on a radio show, which I didn't mm. do because I was flying to America a lot. Right. Um, a, real, a real radio show that you had to... Or you made one or you... Just ten minutes, to... just script right. it, get some friends together and go to the terrible studios at Solent and record it. Oh, um, right. So it's like a local... Yeah, but I left it way too late and I was trying to record it with myself on a laptop but at the time I was on Vimeo putting out like three minutes of video every day Mm. it was called The Weekly Show it was called The Weekly Show and um, it's very hard to do long term but (laughs) for like you know a solid two weeks when I was meant to be doing this radio work I was every day doing three minutes yeah yeah Yeah. and so, you know, I was failing school by not doing the work and mm. conversely doing all of it um, on the weekly show. How long would one of those take you to make? Because uh, it was like two and a bit minutes, two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes, yeah. Um, during the first few, I would walk into uni and get their cameras and use those because mine was broken. So, um, so the walk, it would take about four or five hours. Nice. But to, to, yeah, for... <laughs> And oh yeah, God. and that's why you know I failed the course. I was I was doing that doing that all day, day for two weeks and then sleeping. Yeah. Um, no, towards the end, I would the night before I would just browse the internet for what was happening in the news, get out a big poster board and some sharpies, mm-hmm. and just start writing, and it mm-hmm. would curl around the board. Wow. And then, and then yeah, filming usually takes about half an hour because I can't memorize anything. <laughs> Did you do weekends as well? Uh, I didn't do weekends. Okay. Weekends off. So it was kind of... Um, the, the first season is 14 episodes, 15 episodes. Is there a second season? Second season, uh, week show returns January. <gasps> mm-hmm. Exclusive announcement. Ooh. And where can, we, where can we go and watch it and download it? Oh, 
Give us the URLs. Thanks, guys. Um, <laughs> no, it's... How can we it's find you? How, well, it, maybe you'll be announcing it on your Twitter account or something. I'm sure it will. Okay. There, there have been a lot of people clamouring. I feel quite bad because throughout the past year, there have been people who have replied me or DM'd me every now and then and said, uh, hey, when's New Weekly Shows? And I always have a plan to bring it back mm. and say, oh, yeah, next week I have a script written and everything and then the camera will break down. Mm. Right now the camera is on the other side of the ocean. So that's the obstacle. You have to wait. Yeah. I mean, I could I could use my laptop's built-in mm. webcam, but it's, there are a few Weekly Show episodes that use the webcam. Mm-hmm. But I had to... It's a HP pavilion pavilion something like that and the fan is on constantly because it's on the bottom mm. so to stop the fan i would stick a pin up there <laughs> yeah, and then record very very quickly before <laughs> i overheated and pull out um but I've damaged, so... I've damaged the fan quite a bit so now it's whirring <laughs> constantly and like i don't want to stick a pin in again to record a new episode <laughs> in case it breaks but it's too loud a fan to like open my mouth and just <laughs> so um yeah, so I'm waiting until I get my camera back. Um, so what, on your um, comedy course, what yeah. kind of what kind of people took that course? W- were they funny people, or were they all kind of um, a bit strange? Or there were there's a group. I, they probably won't listen to this. Um, there was a group of four guys on on the course. Um, there were 24 in my year. Um, mm. 24 people, four girls and 20 guys. Mm. Um, and there were a group of four guys called the Four Amigos. And each of them has watched... <laughs> already. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, and they, like, came up with that name day one. They were mm-hmm. like, let's, let's go to them and be the four amigos. And they just watch way too much Office. Mm-hmm. And and they're all Ricky Gervais doing David Brent. Oh, right. In all... And not just in comedy, like, in daily life. Like, you'd say hi, and they go... Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, so the, those guys who... And they fights all the time and, mm. and the group would be splitting up and reforming and they, they shot a little documentary about the four amigos trying to go to Edinburgh um, yeah. for the fringe obviously mm. uh, and then yeah and then there was another who another guy on the course won the Chortle Student Comedian of the Year award mm. and That's then cool. he got an agent and mm. but he only has one routine about the Chuckle Brothers and everyone <laughs> in the class has seen it like ten times yes. at this point yes <laughs> enough yeah. Um, yeah some of the people are funny I tend to have mm. a very American sensibility I think mm. which is strange because when I go to America everyone says oh you're so English you're just like Monty Python I've <laughs> never seen Monty Python, Monty Python. and so what's your connection with America are you are you American or are you half American or something? no I'm you're not at all Scottish by birth oh, and heritage so um mm. Because yeah. I'm looking at your blog, I was talking to you about this as well, that there's this sort of things about Thanksgiving and sort of so, right. real Americanism is creeping in. And yeah. Going, What's I, 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 I was very it's confused like, when, I, <laughs> when I saw on Twitter, right. oh, this is the, the most followed person living in Southampton. That's annoying. I hope she moves out soon. And then you did, which was good. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> well, I, was, I was thinking this... She's was I really the most followed person in Southampton? Yeah, for a while. Wow, that's quite a good brag. You may, <laughs> you, if you moved back to Southampton, you may once again be the most followed well, person in Southampton. 5,313, so... Pretty good. Sure, Beats yeah. my 2,000, whatever, 500 and something. <laughs> but um, I was reading that thinking, there's no way this person lives in Southampton. She's lying. Nice. I need to email her and tell her, <laughs> you know, set your location to be New York or yeah. wherever it is that you live, woman. Right. No, I, I flip back between Albany, New York and wherever I'm based in England at any one particular time because mm-hmm. my girlfriend's over there. Right. And her parents have a lot of air miles. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. 
I do like America a lot more than England. England's fine. It's mm. just very grey. Mm. Which is great at the moment. Yeah. It's pretty oh, damp outside. Well, it's awful. Like, and the sky is very small. Mm. Like, they describe America as big sky country, but when you're driving up, the sky's huge. It's yeah. everywhere. It's great. We are really privileged to have with us tonight Adam Curtis. Uh, Adam's a documentary filmmaker. You'll probably know of him because of things like The Power of Nightmares. Uh, more recently, working with Punch Drunk, he's done a project in Manchester called It Felt Like a Kiss. And he's with us tonight. Hello, Adam. Hi. Adam, tell us about that project. Tell us about It Felt Like a Kiss. Well, it had, its, it's had an odd origin. Uh, I had, just off my own bat, started to edit a, a more experimental sort of film in the BBC, which was trying to really combine what I'd done before was predominantly analytical films which analysed what went on in history trying to look at them from different points of view what I knew I was missing out on was at the same time what it was like to live through that period which often is very confusing I mean you know yourself that when you live through something even just just going through a day it doesn't mean anything it's only later that it's given meaning both by you and by other people who sort of stitch up the bits that fit into a story. Mm. I was interested to try and make a thing which was both about the big story of what it was like to live through at a time, but also the other bits that tend to get dropped and, and the contrast between the more emotional experience and what the actual thing was like. So I just cut that together. I didn't really know what to do with it. You couldn't put it on television uh, because it, it didn't really say, this is a thing about this. Um, then I met this guy called Felix Barrett who runs this company called Punch Drunk who do these, well, it's got all sorts of names, immersive theatre. Mm. Basically, you go into a place and things happen around you. Mm -hmm. And we got on and I showed him the film and he said, oh, I've always been quite interested to see whether one could actually make something where it felt like you went into a film. Mm. Uh, I was a bit dubious about this, but I thought we should try it out. And then the Manchester Festival, who'd, been, who'd approached me already to do something, said... I took it to them and they said, oh yeah, we'll do that then. So we basically built in a large deserted office block in Manchester the world of the film, which is the world of America in the late 50s through to the early 60s, which I always think is a very interesting period because it's before... It's, it's actually as, as America was rising up to its supreme power in the world. At the mm. time the Soviet Union was declining, um, even then people knew it was declining, and, and also at the time when the beginnings of uncertainty were happening, and before, the thing that really, I think, is the real problem of our time, before hippies turned up. <laughs> I really do think, I know it's, a, it's funny, but it's also quite serious, is that sort of almost hippies put a full stop on history because they're, they're all about me, myself, what I want. Mm. The culture we now live in is a culture created out of hippiedom, it lost its politics, it's just become a cultural, almost consumerist thing about me. I think they bear a great deal of responsibility for that and they brought a full stop to history. So I was more interested in just that period before then. So we created that world and you went into it. Uh, it didn't quite work out as we thought it was going to work out and we had all sorts of problems along the way. But it, uh, and we sort of, it, but it was very much, what it ended up as being was you went into the world of the film to begin with, just as people probably experienced it. You went into the rooms 
of things you would see later in the film, and there were lots of fragments and stuff mm. around for you to experience. So to, so to help um, listeners who, who didn't get to go to Manchester and experience this understand it, you had made a film, it was about an hour long, and then in this building, the, you, you working with Punch Drunk had, had built some experiences around the film that would reflect what was in it and would allow people to kind of live inside the world, world of the film. It's up to you how long it took to do it, but most people wandered around in a world without film, or it had little bits of film in it, but mm -hmm. basically it was a three-dimensional world, mm. full in three-dimensional terms of fragments, like you would go into the offices of the CIA, you'd go into um, the, the house that you will see later on in the film, full of fragments that then turn up later on in the film but make no sense other than just experience. So you would experience it. Then you would finally find your way into the middle of this world, into a room where you would see the film and you would see how I had stitched together mm. those mm. stuff into my story, into an emotional but w with an argument to it. You would then exit there and you would find yourself in an even odder situation that you would find yourself in the middle of a horror movie, which made no sense at the time. I won't explain what happened because it may come to London and I don't want to give away too much. And you would actually find yourself having all sorts of fragmentary experiences that made no sense, but only afterwards you would make sense of it. So really what it was about, to be pretentious, it was an exploration of how stuff, experience is turned into stories mm. and the bits that get dropped out. Um, so you go and experience the fragments out of which I then make a film which you then experience and then you get into your own film which as you're being frightened, I won't say anymore, <laughs> really don't make any sense at all and you mm. really run. People ran. Wow. Wow. I mean we had people coming out screaming. Uh, so I, I didn't... Health and Safety said it was fun. <laughs> I was amazed they did. Did you put them through the experience first? You have to. Brilliant. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've gone back on to health and safety. They were so nice to us in Manchester. Um, uh, we had people coming out screaming, and then they go home and they begin to piece together what they have been through. Mm. That was what it was about. It had its faults, but actually, I think it was quite original. Mm. And I think it's the sort of thing the BBC should do. Mm. And what was the BBC's involvement with that project? Were the they, BBC they were a co uh, were a co it was a co-production. I mean... The money we put into it actually wasn't very much. What we put into it was the use of all our archive, because we have a fantastic film archive from that period, mm. um, and some of the projection and audio equipment. But also, just that the BBC should be involved in trying to, what's the word, follow our audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that one of the things we're really bad at is not understanding where our audience are going. Mm. And one of the ways I think our audience are going is towards a fascination with experiencing things themselves. Mm. They're getting increasingly, not bored, mistrustful of programmes that feel thin because they lecture them and tell them. Mm. What they're interested in is going experiencing stuff. What I wanted to then do is vault over that and say, OK, you want to go and experience stuff like Punch Drunk do, I'm then going to actually tell you a story in and make you reflect on the story that I've told you. Mm. And I think that's what we should be doing. Uh, I think it's something to do with the sensibility that the internet is now amplifying in people, which is this desire to jump. No, not desire. Ha they're used to jumping between things. Yes, yeah. Uh, because that's what they spend their evenings often doing at mm. home. Well, actually, they spend their days in the office doing it. <laughs> yes. But, but at, at night, especially, they will jump. If you ever look at people's searches online, mm. they're like avant-garde poems. I mean, they really do yes. jump all over the, sh the shop. 
I think we're slightly obsessed by looking at that as a sort of from a technological point of view. What I'm interested in is it's a sensibility, mm. and that's what people are really happy to do, and that's what we were indulging them with mm. in that show. Mm. But then making them reflect on the fact that when you jump around, you are constructing a story. That's what I've done in the film. That's what you do when you're in the show and what you then do afterwards when you work out how you were frightened. Yes. We were playing with that. And I sometimes think that a lot of my colleagues don't really get this yet. That, <laughs> that it's not that, that they're obsessed with talking about the internet as a t piece of technology. Mm. And they don't really realise that what it's about is about sensibility. And that far from spending their time cataloguing and recataloguing stuff online, they should be really trying to create much more sophisticated works of art, rep reportage, and sheer just enjoyment, mm. which jump all over the place. I'm not asking for irresponsible collage or mosaic. I'm just saying your audience's sensibility is very sophisticated now, and you're mm. not making sophisticated enough works to go with it mm. and they can be really conventional they can be on on television mm -hmm. or on radio but they can jump and that's what we were up to i think i mean so, i do it on apple iMovie yeah, so it's yeah. not too technical i've tried i did a couple on final cut pro when i was using mm -hmm. the university's computers right um i guess what i'm asking is do you have like a a techie side like do you enjoy do you in, deal around with things and in, in year 11 mm. um i moved the bed out of my room mm. into the conservatory downstairs and i slept there and then in my bedroom i had a television on my left side on a bookcase mm -hmm. my laptop um in front of me and then a second monitor mm -hmm. um and then another tv behind me that hooked up so i'd have episodes of the oc internet <laughs> itunes and then uh spider-man behind me and it would i call it the nerve center you sort of put your head in so, the yeah i sat on a spinning chair in the middle and, and like so i'm a little bit a little bit tacky <laughs> information bit. overload yeah that wasn't a good brain wasn't a good period hanging <laughs> up with skin good. cancer from the cathode rays <laughs> so i was um having a look on Tumblr the other day. Right. And it seems like about half the content on Tumblr comes from you. <laughs> I think you run, is it five or six um, blogs on Tumblr? Okay, I have. <laughs> My regular one, Jesus. Let's regular one, Jesus and Judas. Um, small picture, commonplace, proud nature, slate and brief. Um, yeah, that's six. No, there's more, there's commons. Oh, no, that's commonplace. Oh, my apologies, commonplace. There's um, answering yahoos. Answering yahoos at seven. God. I've neglected all of them, though. Like, I haven't posted in... I've been having a bit of a dry spell creatively. Mm. I say bit of a dry spell. I've been on the depressive part of manic professional... Well, no. Um, <laughs> I tend to have cycles where... Like, right now I can't sleep and I'm mm. writing a lot of jokes in the notepad, as you saw. Mm. So, in theory, I should be tumbling a lot, but I'm very busy with... Travelling to London and meeting people. Yeah. <laughs> Coming on podcasts. Yeah. And, so okay. tell us about answering yahoos. I expect that most people listening to this know of you and follow you on Twitter and probably subscribe to a lot of your blogs, but just in case. Well, I'm sure, because I'm so super famous. You're um, famous. But answering yahoos is answering, a... Answering yahoos is I browse Yahoo Answers for mm -hmm. stupid questions. And there always are loads, in my experience. There pretty much every, every <laughs> question. Um, yeah, it's a pretty rich it's, theme. But it's, it's finding a, a bright kind of stupid. Right. I, like, I like questions that, um, that tell a story, mm -hmm. like in the, in the question. Um, and yeah, and then I answer <laughs> the questions. Sometimes sarcastically, sometimes I give real answers. And okay. then I follow up with the joke answer. 
Can we get you to read one out now? Can we? Uh, okay. There's a, uh, there's a page full of them. Because they are really funny. So the, the oh. question is, why aren't liberals pro-choice? And, mm-hmm. then li- and then the person follows up with liberals' version of freedom. No choice in schools, no choice in retirement, no choice in doctors, no choice in healthcare, which seems like a bit of redundancy. Uh, no choice in cars and no choice in light bulbs, which is <laughs> very much, very much that one out. So I, my answer to that was just first they came for the light bulbs, but I did not speak up because I was not a light bulb. And I tripped over because it was dark. Your uh, documentary making career spans as, as far back as 1984, I think, mm-hmm. was your, about the um, Great British Housing Crisis. Well, my first film was actually a dog. Well, it was actually lots of talking animals, to be honest. Was that on that slide? I used to make shots dogs that sang. Is that your first your first move into TV? Was on was on that slide for Lester Anson? Brilliant. I used to do funny films. She taught me the only rule about comedy. What was that? If someone thinks they're funny, they're not funny on television. Interesting. If oh. they if they think they're serious, they can be they can be very funny, and I think that's one of the real problems in a lot of comedy. Is, you know those people who think they're funny on television? They're not funny because you think they think they're funny and they're not. Well, that's the real problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's why The Office works because you because he's actually playing with you. Mm. The game, which is like maybe he really is like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and it's a, it's a modern game in comedy, mm. which mm. is maybe the person doing it, it's a bit like Steve Coogan. Maybe the person doing it really is a bit like that. Well, that's very funny and very embarrassing. Mm. I mean, Gordon Brown's got the same problem, and maybe he is a bit like that. <laughs> and it's the modern way, and it's where modern humour exists. It is not quite knowing whether it's really funny or is it actually tragically embarrassing. So, what what, what did your work on that's life involve? Was it editing uh, footage of dogs, or, or was it? Um, well, it was what? basically doing journalism to begin with, because I'm basically I'm a journalist. Um, mm. But no, I mean, she let me go and do funny films, and I quite enjoyed it. And so, actually, I've got a trick. I mean, the only reason I have succeeded in doing this is I've bolted together what she taught me about dogs <laughs> with posh, upscale, intellectual <laughs> shit. <laughs> and I put the two together, and it works. Because, you know, I, I do a film about, I don't know, monetarism, and then put a joke in. Or I'm filming someone about monetarism, and I think that they're taking it so seriously mm. that it's actually funny, but I don't laugh I just let it yes but if yeah. I think it's funny yeah. I suspect other people will think yes. it's funny I mean like I once made a film called the Mayfair set which is all about a group of people in the 60s who were the early takeover financiers who took over companies and asset stripped them um, and I really said they were the people who began the the return of the markets and the decline of politics and one of them was a man called Jim Slater who was an early asset stripper and I discovered that he he was obsessed with Monopoly, the game Monopoly. Mm-hmm. And he just, and I said, do you know, I was just filming him, and he said, I said, do you know all about Monopoly? He said, oh yes, I can tell you what the best thing is. And it, I can't remember, he then went through, literally for two minutes, describing what you had to do to all the places you had to get onto. Oh, his strategy so, for his winning. Strategy. Oh, and he was doing it completely seriously, he knew it, you could see it, and he was completely serious, and I just let the camera off for two minutes. And I ran it for two minutes. And it's terribly <laughs> funny, but it's also terribly touching because you get a sense of this man as a man who you can see how he thinks. He hated me for it, but, yeah. amazing. but he hadn't put anything. And I mean, he knew I was filming it, so it yeah. was okay. I'd negotiated it, it was okay at the end. But it was just terribly funny. That's what I mean. Mm. Humour is where someone is really serious about something. Mm. When they're trying to be funny, they're terrible. 
I get most of my followers through retweets and follow Fridays. Okay. Um, so I'm actually a big fan of retweets, even though a lot of people hate them. <laughs> and you never use them. Right, You no. like it when people use them on you. Oh, I wouldn't deign to, to <laughs> use them. Um, Have you ever thought yeah. about running another Twitter account? Well, maybe you do. Oh, for actually being social? Uh, no. Or a private one that's, that's with a padlock on it. Yeah, so I'm not very private on the internet. Mm. So that's... There's not that you don't have any need for that. Because um, it seems like your your Twitter account is very polished, and it's a you know it's a production, it's a yeah. it's a comedy vehicle it's, for you. I'm, I'm suddenly tweeting as a character rather than mm. myself, mm. and there'll be there'll be things that are applicable to my real life every now and then, but most of the time it's just yeah it's just jokes. Mm. And reading it, you wouldn't realize that you lived in the UK most of the time. No, probably not. <laughs> We'd say it's a, it's, it comes very much from a kind of US mindset, doesn't it? Well, most of the audience is American, so... Okay, you're right. You know, oh, I, why? I, I spell for them, and... Because oh, right. English people are smart enough to, to, you know, figure it out. But if you put a U in colour, you get a bunch of out replies saying, oh, you're spelling it wrong. Oh, it's just not <laughs> um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, so that, you know, I have to... And I... There's nothing very much interesting happens in... Like, Maybe tweeting about the expensive scandal would have been good. But that's about the only interesting thing to happen in England, I think. The big world news does tend to be US news. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say you probably spend a lot of time reading the news and thinking about politics more mm. than about kind of celebrity Yeah, twats. politics I'm really into. Yeah. Um, hopefully doing it at college. Right. Mm-hmm. Again. I'll be going to Hudson Valley... Hudson Valley Community College in Albany to get my grades up for a semester mm-hmm. because surprisingly my grades from the year I didn't do any work at Solent were not very high. <laughs> I failed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then transferring to State University of New York, Albany, SUNY Albany, to do political science. Oh, cool. Um, do you yeah. think you'll keep up the comedy stuff? Is that your first? Well, I mean, it'll yeah, it'll be mm. that'll be to inform. Yes, comedy, yeah. Really. So. Yeah, Your primary, I like that. primary yeah. thing yeah. is still definitely I'm gonna, comedy. I'm going to go, and yeah. go into politics so that my comedy will be better. Really <laughs> yeah, really I like good. that attitude, yes. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I look forward to seeing you working on The Daily Show in six months' time. Mm. Yeah, watch, watch your name. <laughs> yeah, they've already got John Oliver, they don't need another British person. Would you rather be on screen or would you rather be behind the scenes writing one-liners? For... I, think, I think being on screen, because I mean, John Oliver is still a member of the writing staff. It's true. So, they feel like quite a close knit gang as well, don't they? they also yes. They um, I heard that if there's a joke that if it gets you know a really good laugh, or on the Colbert Report when mm. when Stephen laughs himself at a joke, like if it makes him break character, that writer gets a bonus. Yeah, <laughs> is that which true? Is, yeah, that's brilliant. And that's a pretty awesome right system to work. That's cool. Yeah. That's a good system. Yeah, that's how all comedy should work. Yeah, you make somebody laugh. So I give myself a bonus whenever I make myself laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very rich now. It is your and bonus. also very poor. I mean, in theory, I'm writing a book, so I have, yeah. a, I have a, a, a publisher and a, an advance coming and everything. Tell, so us about, tell us about your book deal, if you can. Uh, I can't say much because there's no... It would be embarrassing if I say a lot and then no contract turns mm. up. Okay. But um, no, it's just a, a, a small publisher who... Um, one of the editors follows me on Tumblr and Twitter and stuff and was like, mm. this should be in a book. And I oh, said, I agree. Brilliant. It should be. And is that, um, 
Is that sort of more the the one-liner twittery stuff? It will be a collection of short humour pieces in the vein of Mm. Jack Candy and Simon Rich. Nice. Fantastic. Yes. Um, Yeah, so in theory I'm writing that. So we'll keep our eyes peeled for your book and obviously watch your blog for news of its title and Mm -hmm. availability. Uh, I'm I'm leaning towards um, no one will touch you if you self-publish and other reasons for my commercial failure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... And it's, right now in my head, it's very, I'm obsessed with irony and mm. postmodernism and, and meta-humour. Yes. And um, I'm currently planning on having an acknowledgements, introduction, prologue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, <laughs> put out yes. so the book actually begins halfway Do through. It. Epilogue, cool. epitaph, <laughs> index. 70 pages of footnotes. Yeah. That's oh, good. It's already funny. <laughs> <laughs> The thing I really want to have a go at is the idea of nature. Um, I think I think the thing that's really interesting at the moment is, is this idea of the web. Um, I think somewhere in the mid-20th century, ideas about nature as an interlinked web, which can somehow find its own stability, harmony, whatever you want to call mm. it, got mixed up with ideas about computer networks. I haven't quite got to the bottom of it yet, but they fed on each other. And out of them came this sort of modern idea, which is fed into new ideas of democracy, that somehow we're all connected in webs and we can somehow find our own stability. You get this a lot in uh, computer utopianism in the early 90s. Um, You also get it a lot in uh, right-wing theories of globalisation. You get it in theories of nature. Mm. Gaia is a, is a very good extreme example of it. But it is this idea that somehow we are all intertwined. I think it's the modern ideology. I don't think we quite see it yet. We see it, well, partly because we see it as natural. And I think it's quite not, I think it's quite dangerous, actually, in not understanding it as an ideology and mm. seeing it as natural, because I think it has unforeseen consequences, which I think is what I want to have a go at. Mm which is that it's unforeseen consequences. It says that if there is a natural stability that these systems can find, whether they be in human relationships, natural relationships, it leads to a very static world. And I think one of the really interesting things that no one's yet examined is what's really happened to the environmental movement. It started off as as quite a radical movement, saying, if you want to change the way we... if you want to stop pollution, all the good things... You're also going to have to change the economic model, the structure of society, the structure of power. It's really translated from that late 70s, early 80s radicalism to a very pessimistic conservative movement which says there is a natural order in everything, that actually it can find its own stability. And the early critics, or no, early warriors in the environmental movement prophesied this. One of them said, I found a camp stumbled upon it the other day, this could lead to a paralysed society where you're constantly saying, if we can only find the natural order of harmony, then everything will be all right. And that very quickly leads to that rather pessimistic view, which is you mustn't, you mustn't tamper mm. with the natural order. And I think, actually, Tony Blair's done us a great disservice in a wider sense by taking us to war in Iraq. Whatever you think about it, what it has destroyed for a generation is any belief that you can go and change a society for the better. Because what people now see in Iraq is, and Afghanistan, they will tell you, is 
No, we went in there and we tampered with some natural sort of st almost tribal system of yes. reciprocity and we've tried to impose this order on them and look at the consequences and I think actually it's done the idea of progressivism and change a great deal of service. Anyway, you asked me what I'm working on. That's the, I, I, what I'm looking at is what's happened to the idea of progress. Mm. Because I think one of the great things of the BBC's part of it, of, of the liberal social democracy of the post war years, is the idea of progress in politics, in all sorts of areas. And it somehow feels we've sort of come to the end of that. In politics, science. I mean, look at science. Science used to, when it moved outside its own, just exper you know, ex exploring the world empirically area, offered progress. It said, we can help you change the world. Now, science, especially with the rise of biology, is all about, no, no, we'll tell you what not to do. Mm. You know, careful, you will die if you don't do this. Mm. If you eat this, your body will decay. You've got these terrible, almost Neolithic codes within you, like computer codes, which will have terrible consequences unless you do this. Mm. It gives you terrible desires to eat the wrong food. Um, natural webs, natural order. Politics is the same. It's got to a very static, steady state, which is, mustn't change anything. It's, 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 let's just manage things. Mm. And I think that's, far from being a, a natural process, progress has somehow stopped. And I want to examine why, because I believe in progress. I like the idea of change, but very few people do. And I think actually one of the things television is very bad at the moment is allying themselves with the agents of not change. You mustn't eat this. You must do this to keep yourself in a steady state. Mm -hmm. Everything's about the steady state at the moment. This is your, this is your, um, the, the the mean uh, index for your mind, for your body, mm -hmm. for society. Yeah, as though we, we've somehow reached uh, yeah, a utopia and we mustn't we, go further. Or we as a scientist can tell you what it is, and you, we, you must be brought back to that. I mean, mm -hmm. I find. Uh, psychological check, psychiatric checklists which show you whether you suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder all those other things are really a way of checking where, how far you have you are aberrant from the mean yeah. and I think that's a really big thing that covers science, politics uh, body health us yeah. uh, and I think it's a static world Do you think that's uh, an inherent element of, of society and civilization that it wants to stay as it is? Uh, you know, that, that once a society feels comfortable and feels confident in itself, it wants to sustain itself and but it doesn't want to... we don't feel confident to... in ourselves. We're, we're, we live in a very, very anxious age. No, I mean, I think that there, are, there have been periods in history, admittedly possibly less, when we have felt really optimistic that we could change the yeah. world. Mm. I mean, look at the post-Second World War. Yeah. I mean, even the Russian Revolution, I mean, it led to terrible nightmares, which is, I think, actually, it's what happens if you've been through a period of great revolution you get a period of terrible conservatism. Mm. And I may be a, ter a, a little voice in the wind going, no, no, no. It, 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 we may be going in for a, we may be heading towards a period of deep conservatism. It's partly also because Mrs Thatcher let through a particular class who had been kept down mm. by snobby elites like the BBC. She let them through and they're now in power and they want what they want. And maybe there's a great impetus for that. There's a fear that you can't change anything. Look what happened in Iraq. Look what happened with the communist revolution. It led to the nightmare of Stalin. It, you're just going to a conservative period. But it's not always like that. And maybe I'm being just nostalgic for a, a sort of 
you know, a period when progress did exist. But it is, progress is an idea that still is within our society. It just seems to have stopped, and I want to know why it stopped. So I'm, that's what I'm going to examine. Mm. Whether I'll find out is another question. <laughs> Avery's only 21, but uh, but doesn't appear to be 21 in your writing. I would say that a lot of 21-year-olds no, are probably happened. quite irritating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got, I got all my irritating out in school. So I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done being irritating. Mm-hmm. That's good. But that's amazing that you've got to this level of sort of um, recognition and produce yeah. so much amazing stuff. I bet stuff. there aren't many 21-year-olds on Twitter with 5,500 followers. Yeah. yeah, but then there's Scarlett Johansson who made Lost in Translation when she was 17. It's unfair so to compare it. yourself to yeah. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson. There's always going to oh, be I, a section every, every, every day I compare myself to Scarlett Johansson. And I think actually one of the things that I'm intrigued by at the moment is that it partly comes through computer utopians. Computer utopians and from both left and right, have given you this idea that somehow with distributed networks you can get a new form of democracy where power doesn't exist any longer. It's all distributed and there's no need for hierarchies and it's like a flat thing. Mm. Well, I haven't seen power change much and I still think that actually they're either a bit naive or they're being used as a smokescreen to disguise the fact that power is still... I mean, look at... you know, you have a banking crisis and we run to rescue them. That's power. I mean, that's the power of the lawmakers, that's the power of the bankers. There is growing inequality in this country through which power is exercised, through money. And I think it's one of the myths of our time that somehow power has been distributed. And I, I, I worry that some of the internet utopians are, have fallen for that. I'm not saying that the internet doesn't distribute information in a really interesting way, but I think a lot of the people in our age confuse information with power mm. and I think it's one of the central confusion of our time is that the internet liberates people because it gives them information which otherwise would have been withheld from them whether that then allows them to scale the heights of power and change the structure of power in society I'm extremely dubious about but I know there is a strong contingent within the internet world and a and wider sense the computer world that feels the opposite uh, and I think that's a very, it's a really interesting area that hasn't yet been debated. And I think that it's about time someone put those computer utopians under the microscope. It comes through two sources. It comes, one, through the hippie left, the, 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 that group of hippies who moved away. It comes through Buckminster Fuller, especially, you know, mm-hmm. the, the guy who inspired the whole Earth catalogue. That whole idea of distributed web information, which the whole Earth catalogue was the early incarnation of. At the same time you get all those Silicon Valley libertarians who are inspired by people like Ayn Rand, the novelist, Mm. who believe somehow that computers can create a world in which individuals can link up with each other and somehow find a form of stability between themselves without an elite telling them what to do. I don't believe it, but I mean, it's it's. Do you, it's, do you want to believe it? Do you do you feel like it would be nice if it was true, or do you think that ultimately it's best to have a hierarchy of some sort? Or? I think one of the most ex- unexamined uh, areas, and I think it's it's a it would be a really good ripe one, is what's wrong with elites? Mm. Maybe elites are good. Maybe elites actually are the people who take you places. Because there, I mean, there is an argument that that's. I mean, take, take a lot of stuff on, on, on the net. 
the internet dis distributes information fantastically. It's absolutely brilliant at it. Has it produced any really new content? I mean, even computer games, which are really inventive. I was thinking this today. If you look at the content of them, they are all about periods in history when probably their parents were happiest. They're, they're, I mean, they are, they are nuclear paranoia from the 60s through the 70s, plus 80s kitsch culture. I mean, repeatedly, that's what games return to. They don't tell you anything new about the world. It's the children playing in the ruins of their parents' experiences. It's really interesting how, really since the early 90s, very little, not just on the internet, but in, in popular culture, hasn't been new. There was a flurry after the fall of the Berlin Wall of sort of invention in film, games, uh, music, quite a lot, with a lot of reworking of stuff, but, but actually sampling. <laughs> and then it just stopped. And, and, and everything is now, in a way, about archaeology. From I mean... Mm. Even Rediscovering the 80s feels yes, like what fashion yes. is all about. Even moment. the most fashionable music, actually, mm. Mm. is really just going back and using mm. digital technology to, to rework something. and doesn't even make it sound that different. I mean, a lot of this synth-bound stuff is actually just like archaeology. Uh, and even in popular culture, I mean, we sing in reality shows, we sing songs from like the 1950s. Mm. I mean, that's like people in the 60s singing songs from the 1920s. Mm. And going back to the thing about progress, that's not progress. That's endlessly going back and reworking. And I sometimes wonder whether the problem with digital culture is that at a period of pessimism, it's allowed people to go back into the ruins and rework it again and again and again as a sort of almost defensive mechanism. It's not their fault, it's because no one has any new ideas. It's, it's a way back. Uh, and, and librarians become kings because they can offer you the new way to rework things endlessly mm. um, and, 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 and everyone becomes happy as Larry playing in these sandboxes as I think they're called in games where you're constantly reworking the old culture I, 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 love, the, I love the three minute animals that come out of YouTube I love all that stuff but I still haven't seen anything beyond three minutes that is substantially new content come out of the internet so to put the, the opposing point to that I wonder if something, if there is cause for hope, I wonder if there are interesting things that are happening, even if they're hard to find or even if they're not mass appeal. F for example, um, somebody like Jane McGonigal, whose games are, are quite different to computer games. Like, you know, she, she created a game last year called A World Without Oil, which allowed people to imagine what the world will be like in the future where we have run out of oil. And actually, some people were kind of passively observing what other people were up to but some people chose to live their lives for a few weeks as if they'd run out of oil and people were converting their cars and you know converting to run on chip fat and, and things like that so there was real creativity going on as well as uh, what what i think is kind of you know in, ingrained with a real sense of, of progress in order to work around uh, near future and, and, and mid-term problems but i would simply tell you mm. that, that that's exactly what people did in the early 1970s they went off, they were called hippies, and they lived in worlds in Buckminster Fuller domes, and they tried to live in a world without oil. They worried about oil running out, and they worried about uh, the population growing, and they worried about global warming. Mm. 
I'm but none of them, them, but none of them worked out how you challenge the structure of power to change the world in what, in, in, to get what they wanted. Mm. And I would simply say, I haven't played your friend's game, but I would simply say that actually, that's just like playing in a nursery. I mean, if you're going to change the world, you change the structure of power in society. I mean, and you change the way other people think who don't necessarily believe with you. What I think a lot is happening in culture at the moment is that it's dividing into areas where you just get reinforced because you're playing to people who already believe you. It's back to power. I came into television because actually if you want to change, make people, if you want to be progressive and you want to change the world, not in a political way, but in a wider way, you want to get over to people who don't necessarily agree with you and you want to use your skill and your imagination to do that. I know I'm being cynical, but I really do think that if you change the world, you've got to change the structure of power. And I'm a bit fed up with the infantilism, not just of modern political movements and environmental movements, but also, you know, where the wild things are. It's a sort of, there's a, there's a sort of retreat, not just into our parents, the ruins of our parents' culture, but really into being like children now. Mm. I mean, it really is fascinating how much films are being made for adults that are actually children child films mm. up where the world things are fantastic mr fox it's 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 as if in the face of inability to change rather than thinking how do we change it get engaged we get involved in a sort of childish version of it all on the other hand though the, the counter argument to that is if you live in a time when no one has any idea of how to change the world why not go and just play and I think a lot of, our, of modern consumer culture is actually quite an intelligent response to the inability of, your elite, of the elites to have any new good ideas about mm. the world. If they don't, play. Mm. It's also the fault of people like me. I mean, the, the elites in television. We haven't got the faintest idea what the next thing is. Mm. We have no idea. So we retreat into the past and endlessly rework things. Yeah. I could say the same what I do. I'm honestly going back into the archive, reworking the stuff and coming up with an analysis and oh, it's all terrible, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it, we, don't, we can't see into the future. Mm and there aren't any new ideas, there isn't a big story that tells us about uh, uh, People like me try and say, well listen, you mustn't retreat into a dark apocalyptic pessimism as a result of that. Mm. And we can try and correct that, but why not play? We live in a decadent age, we have absolutely no idea what's coming, mm. we've got fantastic technologies, let's just play. Mm. But, but in that play we're just reworking the same old stuff. Um, and it's and you know, perhaps making better sense of, of the world and ourselves, but uh, you would argue, you know, to, to no great. Forward. I don't even think effect. we're making sense of the world. I think we're just having a really good time. And actually, I think probably what we're going to do, we're going to enter into a really elaborate age of costume and. I, I just think mm. yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe play. Or there's going to be a really serious crisis, mm. in which case you will get a new elite coming up who will just get the old elite out of the way and they've got to solve it, mm -hmm. which they did in the 1930s. I mean, the crisis we've been through at the moment is nothing like the 1930s. It may become like it, or it may be just a moment, another moment of, of fear and, and pessimism, mm -hmm. and it will correct itself and we'll just carry on playing. Mm -hmm. But quite frankly, we do live in an extraordinary time. We're fighting two foreign wars. We have serious economic crises, mm -hmm. yet we somehow, none of us really believe it's going wrong. I mean, I know that mm. the people, my colleagues in the newsroom, who are really good reporters, have absolutely no idea whether the economic crisis that we're going through at the moment is actually bottoming out and recovery mm. is going on, or whether 
Greece, Spain, Ireland, and maybe us may go bankrupt. And they don't even know if we did go bankrupt, what would then happen? They, no one knows, and we know they don't know, and we know that they're gazing into darkness. So why should we watch the news? Mm. I mean, I, I personally feel that myself. Is oh yeah, another shit thing's happened. Right. No one knows what it means. Play. Why not? Adam, thank you very much for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure. Certainly our most serious uh, interview yet, but also I think the most fascinating. In a good way, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really appreciate your very time to come to join us tonight. Thank yes. you very much. Good. I'm in computers. I'm in the mainframe. I'm in your headphones. When they start sailing a boat, though, I have problems with that. Do they, you? Don't they build a boat and start they sailing? They build a boat. They find a boat. <laughs> right. And they, they chew through the uh, rope so that they can escape from the Ausla the from Ephrafa. That's very exciting. Right. That's the best, the best bit. They get away by one of the rabbits is quite clever and can see things and can understand what's going on. Yes. And another, they've all got is special that, abilities. Is that Hazel? No, Hazel. Fiverr. Fiverr has another ability, which is the ability to kind of detect danger. Right. He's got a spidey sense. He's got, right. Yeah. He's got peril sensitive. Exactly. Blackberry is the one with the black tuft on his head or something. You no, just read this. That's Bigwig. Oh, sorry. So Bigwig's no. special strength is that he's oh, quite see, strong. Oh, I haven't read it for 30 years. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. Um, Big, Bigwig's strong. Right. And a natural So they are kind of like little power rangers. Yeah. They've, they've each got their own thing. It's just like Dungeons and Dragons. They've all got their <laughs> own ability. I like it. I didn't realise this when I read but it. Yeah, one of them has the power of abstract thought and can detect, um, or not detect, but can, you know, kind of work out all... This floats, therefore, if we stand on it, oh. we can we can get away. And that's hmm, it's not Fiverr; it's another one. Yeah, one that you I'm can. Gonna say, I'm going to say Blackberry for now. Okay. Yeah, somebody can correct me. And and is Hazel the protagonist? If there is one, I would say that yeah, Hazel is the kind of um, yeah, he's the he's the kind of underdog chief rabbit. Right. And by the end of it, he's limping, and he's not very. He's he's certainly not the strongest rabbit, but they mm. all respect him, and Aww. he 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 leads them out of the first uh, warren yes. where they live initially. Mm-hmm. And it's Fiverr that has the idea, but but he could never do it on his own. He needs yeah, he, he needs, needs a kind of leader. Own. It's like life. It's just like that. And and is there a um, uh, is there an, an enemy called the Black Rabbit of inlay cards? <laughs> that's, that's he's, what I always think of him as. He's not the enemy. What's he actually called? <laughs> he's, like, oh. he's like death. Oh, he's the he's the spectre of death. Yeah, right. Yeah, he represents death. He Inlay represents is, the death of I, the, the cassette tape. That's right. Inlay cards. <laughs> I think he's. Um, I think he represents the. I think Inlay might be night, because they, there's Frith, which I think is the sun, and Inlay, oh. which might be the moon or night. So the black rabbit of Inlay is is the kind of. He's the death figure. Right. Um, quite scary. He comes for you when it's your time. Oh. So have you read any other? Richard Adams' books. Yes, I read The Plague Dogs. Did you? I, st- I started reading it's that. very good. Song, yeah. Why did you not finish it? I was like eight and I thought it was a bit hard or something and I just gave up. But I did steal it from my school library, <laughs> so I think I've still got it somewhere. Um, um, as it's traditional. Naughty. But no, that's, that, I think that's quite, supposed to be quite good as well. But a scary film as well, I think. Um, I never saw the film, but mm. I quite enjoyed the book. Watch It Down's nice because it creates a whole really kind of well thought out world doesn't it with language and everything they've all got their rabbit words for things and their uh, yeah, and by the end of it systems. he makes a joke in which um, some of those words get put together into a sentence in, in a slightly unusual way mm. and if you've picked up on them throughout the, throughout the book then you make sense of the sentence and it's quite rude what, what Bigwig says to General Windward is quite rude oh, right. but you only understand it if you've kind of been taking in the meaning of, yeah, of the yeah. words so in uh, yeah, exactly, it's like a kind of if if you're clever enough, yes, then this won't shock you. Anthony Burgess does it in Clockwork Orange as well. He makes up a, a, a language called Nadsat, which is the okay. kind of teens' language of the 
um, the youth in Clockwork Orange, and it's partly Russian. In fact, mm. a lot of the, the origin, uh, the root words in, in that set are Russian. So things like um, Bolshi, mm. Bolshi Great Yarbles. We could do a competition on fictional languages or something. Mm. Yeah. Oh, what words have you kind of carried with you? Yeah. Because like, I always think use? about Silfle. Whenever I'm out early, in, it's very very rarely, but if I'm out early in the morning on like a summer's morning or when the sun's setting and you see just rabbits over, you know, you see mm. like hundreds of them in the fields. And I always think about Silfle and there they are enjoying their Silfle. Yeah, they're having Silfle. Yeah, Silfle. That's you know, nice. It's lovely. And it's a word that's now become part of your life. And mm. you, you saw me use it the other day because yeah. I wasn't reading very well. And I said I was yes. nibbling on a bit of dry toast like yes. I was like I was at Silfle. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Oh. So wow. that's one that I've definitely uh, carried with me. So if you've got a favourite uh, invented language, obviously not, you know, not like French or Russian, but a, a, a favourite language that you've picked up from... Uh, you know, maybe books or films or mm. something, and and tell us the word in that language that sticks with you that you that you maybe still use all these years later. Yeah, and and maybe maybe give us give us an example of using it in a sentence or something. Yes, and we'd like that. That'd be nice. Exactly, and if you do that, we'll we'll maybe um, find something something nice to send you. Yes, we've got well, and um, in terms of competition prizes, we have been offered a few things so far. We have got some stuff to send people already, which is great. Are you going to introduce it, or, yeah, or, yeah, or, 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 or again, will it just fade in as part of some <laughs> ambient soundscape as usual? Well, I think we should have some kind of intro. Um, it's New Year, and Dave Green is back with um, some New Year's snacks reviews. Hello. Hello, and it, and it's uh, this time it's it's snacks of two thousand nine. Uh, these are products that I thought had particularly bad names. Okay. And uh, you know, straight uh, straight in at, at number three, mm-hmm. it's 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 a top three of badly named disappointments right. <laughs> of, of two thousand and nine. Uh, were Cadbury's clusters? Yes. And um, I think that like these must have come out like at the start of the year. Yes. And uh, essentially, they were a bit like uh, cornflakes coated in what turned out not to be mm. Cadbury's dairy milk. And naturally, there's an assumption. Ooh. With, yes. with any Cadbury's product that you assume it's coated with Cadbury's dairy milk. Right, is that and like their sort of their baseline chocolate that's, that they use for everything? That's, that, that's their top chocolate, you know, that's, okay. that's what they're known for. Yeah. But if a product just says Cadbury's yeah. and, it's, and they don't emphasise dairy milk on it, then it's it kind of implied that this is some other rogue, this is, <laughs> this is some other chocolate. I don't know, look, this is, this, is, this is what the connoisseurs claim. Yeah. So, um, it's sort of the B team chocolate. That's... Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's, maybe, it's maybe the leftover chocolate. I'm not saying it's the cooking chocolate of, uh, <laughs> of, 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 of Cadbury's yes. uh, range. But um, yes, yeah, so certainly people, people complained they didn't feel they were getting real dairy, the real dairy milk experience from it. Right. The glass and a half was half empty, yeah. if you will. And, um, and yeah, and, like, and subsequently, someone was, so like, I, I, I remember offering these to people in pubs because that's mm. what I do. And, um, and they said, oh, yeah, I, also, I don't like the name. There's, yeah. the, the, there's, no, there's no context, context in, in uh, normal usage where, where the word cluster no. means, means a good thing. There aren't many positives. <laughs> no one goes, oh, there's a, there's a 
cluster of happiness around the nuclear power station. Um, wow, look, these, these, these issues have really clustered around the, around the web server or whatever. So, um, yeah, well, I, I don't know. I mean, all credit to, to Cadbury's uh, mm. for, for, try, for trying something new. Uh, but you know, and 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 at least you can share your clusters with your friends. Yeah, and I, was like, what, what, I remember trying these with you in the in said pub, and um, and what was the cluster aspect of them? Because as I recall, they were like bits of broken up lion bar or something. I, I, yeah, I, I think they're like. I, I mean, obviously, presumably, you can't sell it as. <laughs> Cadbury's cornflake cake or whatever yeah. it is so they had to claim it was mm. you know a, an exciting mm. clustering of a spontaneous <laughs> gathering of yes. cornflakes and raisins and maybe maybe right. there was a nutty one in there as well I, yeah. I get I, I lose yeah, track after a while picnic, they're a bit like those picnic bars or something but yeah there was that sort of leftover feeling to them like the leftovers oh, yeah. <laughs> a, a cluster of disappointment that yes. one really for me you know not, not, nice packet <laughs> that's so that's yeah. the best thing which brings us on which brings us on ah. to number two yes. in my 20, uh, <laughs> 2009 disappointments Walker's Red Sky Crisps mm. uh, interesting for, t- for a number of uh, reasons I don't, I don't I don't have you seen the, the publicity for, for the Walker's Crisps mm, not that I remember no oh, well, I'm not, well, I'm, I should emphasize they don't, they're not branded as they're not branded as walkers. The, ah. like when well, like when you see the TV ads, there, there's a kind of mole and uh, and maybe a, a sparrow and they and <laughs> a the, mole. The, they're, they're in silhouette and the mole <laughs> digs up a red pepper and the sparrow has a chili or something like that and they okay. like um and they create they create a flavour from nature. Right. And basically, Red Sky is kind of is a me too product of uh, of kettle chips and the other slightly more upmarket crisps. Mm. But because Walker's already had sensations as their upmarket crisps, mm. you're, you're being very tolerant of this yeah, fascinating no, brand positioning uh, tutorial. I might, um, <laughs> I might be tested on it later. Yeah, so Walker's, Walker's took their name off Red Sky and just said, oh, it's a new brand. Maybe it's been, maybe it's an, maybe it's been done by some artisans. Oh, I see. Maybe, it, maybe, it's, maybe it's just a farmer, of course. Red Sky, <laughs> Shepherd's Delight or Warning, it's depending. Just, just made on a farm. <laughs> yeah, what does Red... Yeah, what, I mean, Red Sky isn't particularly positive either in, in its connotations. Uh, I, I, yeah, you know, it, 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 it depends. Well, it is Shepherd's Delight, but... Or, or warning. In, or well, it's Guy in the Morning, it's Shepherd's depend- Warning, yeah, depending on the time of day. Yeah, well, and actually, perhaps it's an indication that, so what is it? So actually, maybe you, they're suggesting, since mm. subconsciously, you should only eat them in the evening. That might be it. Red Sky crisps in the morning. <laughs> like... Warning for anyone. Warning for anyone that your diet is yeah. in the right direction. <laughs> you're, going, you're going off the rails. Stop having crisps for breakfast. For breakfast. So yes, I could have come up with a better name for crisps than that. Yeah. I'm. I'm not saying that. I'm not volunteering to help in Walkers. Fairness, you, if you probably do have more experience than most of the people who currently work in the branding department at Walkers. Who, who, who might be doing that? So and uh, but you're, you're you're probably wondering what my number one weirdest named. Disappointment product is of 2009, and I can exclusively reveal mm-hmm. I think it has to be Wrigley's Five. Yes, that's rubbish. Uh, and, um, and 
not, you know, again, promising to see Wrigley's fighting back against um, the Cadbury, Cadbury's tree ball Bassett brought out all these Trident gums that, again, weren't, didn't have the best name in the world mm. and were... <laughs> they were in Trident, uh, not particularly uh, positive associations with uh, the Trident. Uh, yeah, they have, uh, you know, perhaps it has, it has three prongs or something, mm. or like, or, the, the, you know, mm. uh, the, uh, the unpopular nuclear missile, <laughs> even by nuclear missile standards. Yeah, the and the the fascinating thing about Wrigley's Five, mm. lovely box. I don't know. I don't know if you've seen yeah, them. Yes. I, would, I would have brought one along that we could. Uh, no, yeah. Just just imagine a normal chewing gum container, and, yes. then, and then it's fan, and it's in, in amazingly glamorous, and it's got a kind of matte surface to it, right. and um, uh, uh, yeah, and it, it pops open in a nice way, oh, and it? yeah, and it's got lots of different, lots of futuristic. The, 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 like the cinema ads, yes, some, someone's someone's dropped into what looks like that kind of Jodie Foster thing out of contact, yeah, and and you're told this is what experiencing Wrigley's Five is like, and then they have a kind of ball bearing shower or something, yeah, and get pumped around in a massive and, noise. <laughs> and it wasn't till I saw those those ads that mm. I realised that that's what the five stood for. Yeah. And there was endless speculation on the on the Snack Spot website as to right. whether whether they were only going to do five flavours of this Wrigley's thing. Yeah. Or whether like um <laughs> Or whether it counted as one of your five a day in some way. It counted as like a, a, as, as a portion of fruit or vegetables. But, um, yeah, looking, looking at that cinema advert, it seems to be the case yes. that um, it's supposed to stimulate all five of your senses. Right. Tastes, yeah. primarily. Let's try the, uh, the other four out and see how it um, shapes up. Sight... And kind of. sight and touch because it's a nice box. Yeah. Although it's, you know, it's pretty much your standard Wrigley's. Gum strip when when you when oh, you okay. when you get into it, mm-hmm. I uh, I can never remember what the other senses are hearing. Yes, some it, I don't know. It, it, it's not much noisier than normal gum. It has a little bit of a sort of texture to it. <laughs> the, yeah, the sound one is surely not a plus. I, mean, <laughs> I think it should be called four. <laughs> it should be should be special silent gum. And um, smell Did and smell. Say, well, does it smell of anything? Yeah, well, and the packet the packet is a little bit fruity. Right. That, um, pack, you're reviewing it based on the packet entirely. Well, you you, you don't open eat the packet. Yeah, well, like it's like it's like you open the packet and you mm. go, oh, I could perhaps potentially use this as an air freshener in a, in a new car or something like right. that. It, it, it has it has quite a. Um, a strong perfume, okay. if, that, or, or if, if that's the technical term. The um, I think I tried the um, the pulse crisp tropical one was right. the um, what well, like taste of crisps was my favourite. <laughs> no, but it, my other favourite thing about it is that they they called the peppermint version cobalt cooling peppermint. Okay. Which uh, again, I don't, I, I don't know if you, if you, if you, if you're familiar with the great test, taste of cobalt. <laughs> I've, never, I've never tried eating cobalt. Um. It's a, it's a metallic element with, uh, yeah. with, 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 I believe, an atomic weight of about fifty-eight point nine. Mm, tasty. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and um, and again, uh, typically, if you put if you if you put cobalt uh, into into a search engine, you go, oh, I wonder if I wonder if cobalt actually does taste of cooling yes. peppermint. Um, <laughs> Most of the hits you get are are, are are regarding its 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 potential use in dirty bombs. <laughs> I was I was disappointed that mm. um, that the uh, that sizzling cesium and uh, <laughs> soothing strontium don't yes. appear in the rest of the range. 
So that 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 was uh, that like uh, really Wrigley's five, I think, possibly the most confusing, but also the most enticingly mm. baffling of all of all the weird product names this year. That kind of that kind of wraps up two thousand and nine. What a, what a year it's been. trip in our blimp please come and win a trip in our blimp all you have to do is turn up and express an interest in riding in our blimp you not believe how rare such an interest apparently is it's so rare that i wish i could bottle that interest and sell it rather than work in the blimp industry where i am making like zero dollars let me tell you a little about our blimp it is an extremely big blimp which was a poor decision on my part Apparently, if you have a blimp that's too big and you can't pay for someone to regularly check it over, you get crows nesting in it. Goddamn crows, honest to God, I am not shitting you about the crows, although they are shitting us on an almost daily basis. But rest assured, if you win the trip in our blimp, we will provide you with a stick to beat the crows away with. Or something. Please do not go on sea deck if you come aboard the blimp. Sea deck is where my cats live. Did you know that if you forget about your cats for long enough, they will go feral? Did you know that once cats have tasted human flesh, they cannot go back? <laughs> I feel like I should have had more information about the cats before I bought them, much like with the blimp. Did you know that most people have next to no opinion on blimps? If this includes you, then fuck you. Also, I feel like just one ride in our blimp will turn you around to liking them, or at least not not liking them, or feeling nauseous. So come on down to the abandoned parking lot on 4th and take a ride in the blimp, unless the cops are there, in which case you never saw us. Also, don't come on Tuesdays, or Thursdays, or Sundays, because those are the days Carlos works, and it turns out he's been huffing the helium. The whole blimp starts collapsing, and he's running around squeaking for help, and it's a whole big scene. Some days, it's like Carlos is begging to be fed to the cats, which, for all I know, he could be. I don't speak Mexican. Thank you for joining us uh, on your on your New Year's Eve uh, afternoon or whenever it is you're listening to this. And uh, we've had fun. We hope you have too. Uh, 2009 comes to an end. Yeah, we're gonna. We've got loads more coming up in 2010. So please keep tuning in through the New Year as well. Yeah. The guests are just getting better and better. We I'm haven't just, run out, have we? No. I mean, seriously, it's been hard to fit everyone in because we promised so many people New Year spots. It's a good thing, isn't it? And it's brilliant. And so we'll, we've, thank next you. year we've got writers, we've got comedians, we've got. Musicians. Oh, got all sorts. Yes. So, Happy New Year. And we'll see you again next week. We're probably going to start doing weekly episodes. That's how That's how keen we are. Yep. Um, more guests, more prizes, more episodes, more fun. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Quite down, please. <laughs> I'm in computers. I'm in computers.